This episode of Upstream in Perspective is brought to you by IHS Markets Upstream Insight. Our team of industry experts analyze the interplay of geopolitical structures, government priorities, corporate strategies, and global markets and technologies to deliver forward-looking solutions that lead to more informed and efficient decisions. These solutions are available via recurring reports, interactive analytics, robust data sets, and bespoke engagements with experts. Learn more about our offerings at www.ihsmarket.com energy. All right. Well, everyone, this is David Vaucher from IHS Market, uh, your uh, infrequent but regular host for Upstream and Perspective. Uh, I know that we don't, be, don't do these very often, but uh, it's been my pleasure to host these episodes uh, in the recent past, and I'm very happy to be joined here uh, again by two of my IHS Market colleagues for what should be a really interesting discussion. So uh, I think the the preamble to this, and, and we're recording this on uh, February 23rd, 2022, is that uh, geopolitically, geopolitically rather, things have been uh, fluid. I think that's the, the most generous thing you can say. Um, I, I don't want to get too much into it because we have uh, expert colleagues here that can speak much more to it than I can. But uh, speaking as someone who, who lives in Europe, I think what all of this really underlines is that access to energy is is really important. Uh, this is something that is, is taken for granted in, uh, in we'll say, usual times. Uh, but in times where things don't go quite as planned, access is, is really important. And I think that's something to keep in mind today as we look at a play that is certainly talked about within the industry, but maybe doesn't quite look as attractive by traditional metrics but when you sort of look at these other issues surrounding energy, in this particular case, access for the region, I think it starts to make sense. And that is the Vaca Muerta play in uh, in Argentina. And so to talk more about this, uh, I've got two of my colleagues from the Vantage team, Fernando Machado, who is joining us again, and uh, Renato Machado, who is new to the Vantage team, uh, has been with IHS Market for a long time, but who will help us through this journey into the Vaca Muerta in Argentina. So thanks very much to you both for uh, joining us today. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. And I should also say, just uh, to be completely uh, clear and open, they, they are not related. I'm sure they are close colleagues, but uh, no relation between uh, Renata and Fernandez. So with that out of the way, I guess let's let's just jump right into it. So the Vaca Muerta, I remember really hearing about this kind of in the early 2010s. It seems like it has maybe picked up since then. So Renata, could you perhaps just kind of set the scene for everyone and kind of tell us a little bit about what does this look like, or Renata and Fernanda, sorry, what does it look like geographically? And then from a production standpoint, what does it look like relative to other parts of the world? Hi, David. It's Fernanda here. It, it's important what you said before. Vaca Morta is the most important unconventional play outside North America and extremely important for Argentina secu- energy security. It is located in the Neuquén Basin. It's an unconventional play. There was before conventional production in the Neuquén Basin, Basin that peaked in 1999 and since then has been under decline and Vaca Morta is expected to revamp or rejuvenate this basin and then with a huge potential of bringing production up to 830 barrel per day, I think in 2030. So it's extremely important for the country and for the south part of Latin America to have this full potential develop over the next decade and, and years. So I think uh, Renata will bring us some 
context, right? About yeah. um, the production and development of this play. Yes, I can, Fernanda, thank you. Uh, first of all, thank you, David, for the introduction. So talking a bit about the history of Vaca Muerta, actually, uh, Argentina has a longer history in the oil and gas industry. So as Fernanda was saying, uh, in the beginning, it was uh, mostly focused on the onshore activity, unconventional, but uh, the country has been facing a huge decline in conventional production for more, more than a decade now. So, and the discovery of the unconventional resources was something that was really huge for the country. So, as David says, the, the first unconventional discovery was at Bacamueta Formation, uh, Argentina, in 2010. And then development wells started in the next year, in 2011. And since then, the, the activity in Vaca Muerta has increased a lot. And a lot of uh, developments also has been made in the technology, the presence of new companies. They were really interested in exploring the area. And what's also interesting is that these companies, they also brought the technology to Vaca Muerta. So Argentina could use expertise already developed in the US, for example, the use of horizontal wells, longer lateral wells, frac stages, all of these, it has contributed to the development of the plane. So as I said, Vaca Muerta formation is the Latin America's most promising area for the development of unconventional. So, and it started uh, in 2013 with lots of government incentives for gas, for example, uh, lots of joint ventures with YPF, lots of new companies there. So it's something really that deserves uh, to be known as the, the greatest unconventional for Latin America. Okay, and just to be clear, you know, when you had said that unconventionals were sort of discovered, clearly there's a there's a geological piece. I mean, they've always been there. But I'm just presuming that what allowed this to become a relatively serious prospect was the same things that allowed them to become prospects in the U.S., right? So that's the horizontal drilling versus yeah. uh, hydraulic fracturing. Okay, perfect. Yeah, yeah. So perfect. about this technology, uh, during early developments of Vacamuerta, the operators, they were drilling uh, mainly vertical wells. So I can say that in about 2015, more than 70% of the wells fractured, now uh, unconventional, they were still vertical. Uh, but of course, with the coming with, uh, of these international operators and international suppliers, also rig suppliers like Heavy Campaign and Archer, and going with that, going with this technology, what was happening in the US shale, they started the drilling uh, horizontal wells. And it proved to be much more profitable. Uh, you see, in the next in the year uh, following the 2016, more than 90% of the wells were already horizontal. This impacted a lot productivity, costs of the wells, and the way we see uh, wells being drilled nowadays. So lots of laterals increasing in a fast rate, uh, longer laterals, the number of fracking stages also increased a lot. So in this happened with YPF, and especially with its partners, they made some good improvements to reduce these, these drilling costs and to enhance production. 
And they did that, as I said, focusing on technology and good suppliers. You see uh, costs, they dropped from something about $15 million per well to $8 million before the, the pandemic. Wow. It's more than 40% drop. So it's that, really huge. It's huge. No, that, that is. And I think we can we can uh, maybe come, come back to that. I'll, in fact, come back to all those points, because I think there's a lot of things that were raised there. But we're really important for for the rest of the discussion, and and I think what what you're kind of setting the scene for there, Renata, is is this infrastructure that has to be in place because as we know in the U.S., unconventionals happen because of technology, but they also happen because of of infrastructure. And infrastructure can be either just we can talk about that very specifically in terms of supply chains, or we can talk about that much more broadly in terms of uh, of a legal and judicial infrastructure to allow all this to happen. And so I'm I'm wondering. You know, before we we dive deeper into any of these topics, could one of you please talk about the the infrastructure that was available and has been set up since that that enables the Vakumar sets to be to be developed further? Yeah, I, I can add some some points about relate about the infrastructure. You see, the problem to reduce even more costs of drilling, for example, and conventional costs is related with the infrastructure. Nowadays, we can see a break-even prices in Vaca Muerta, in best case, at about 35 to $45 per barrel. And these values is related with infrastructure. Because, for example, sand transportation to New Cain from the main providers nearby, it's, it accounts for more than 40% of the total price of fracking. Wow. So, yeah, it's really, it's huge. And you see, this break-even price is not the ones that we can see in U.S. It's, it's above that. In U.S., you can see break-evens lower than $30 per barrel. So the investment in local infrastructure is one of the most important issues. There is uh, lots of problems with local infrastructure. Insufficient roads, um, the rail infrastructure is also, well, not good. It causes lots of delays in this, in this process, in the drilling process. I, I would like to add on infrastructure a bit on, sure, please, yeah. um, <laughs> on actually on the part of on the selling oil and gas on the pipeline infrastructure. But um, the oil infrastructure is, is fine to export the, the oil produced in there. It, it's capable of. And actually, it's interesting that uh, because of the pandemic and the decline in the domestic demand, Argentina was able to export products and have an incremental revenue that was welcomed by the government by the time. But on the gas side, the question is a bit more dark because the Two companies dominate the market, TGN and TGS, and the Argentina gas market is highly seasonal. So during the winter, from May to September, then the demand grows. It's a peak demand, and the residential consumers, they are prioritized, of course, <laughs> but then it, it causes a, a highly seasonal demand. And then to grow Vaca Morta gas production in the country, then there will be additional pipeline, but not only locally, but actually throughout the country. So, for example, pre-COVID, production in the basin has averaged 9% of available pipeline capacity. So, and during the winter, it exceeded capacity. 
So that's that's uh, I, an issue even more when we see that production may grow a lot. And then options could be export more, more to Chile, convert the short-term contracts they have to a firm basis contract. And, and they also have a new gas uh, pipeline called Gasoduto Presidente Nestor Kirchner for a reason, <laughs> and they would increase capacity, would add 1.37 BCF per day in capacity. And, and without going into, into too much of a tangent here, but <laughs> I know that in, in North America, uh, you know, pipelines are, are opposed for, for anything. It's, it's, it's really sort of su- surprising is the only word I have now is that whatever the pipeline is transporting in the U.S., even if it's not hydrocarbons, there's opposition. So do, do either of you have a sense in terms of how easy it is to establish these new routes to market? I mean, is there opposition or is it generally relatively straightforward to build a new pipeline if there's the need for it? Last November, the government announced that this pipeline, this new pipeline would be would start construction in 2022. And okay. I haven't read anything against it. There are a lot of bull ground issues in Argentina, but not specifically with pipeline for what I okay. what I've read. Yeah. No, that's that's that that's good because I think, as you said, you know, we prepared this, and there are a lot of above ground issues that we can well we will get to at the end of the podcast. But it is interesting, from my perspective at least, as someone who studies North America uh, much more closely. Just there's potentially that difference in ease, and I use ease in quotes because I know anything <laughs> is difficult to build. But certainly, if in fact that is the case, that there's less opposition. Uh, to pipelines in in Argentina, I think that does remove quite a large hurdle to to development. Um, yeah. I, I do. I have. I was studying in about uh, Alaska, North North Slope as well, and they have a problem with pipeline. Nothing compares to Argentina. Argentina, sure. <laughs> it's it's quite simple in in this comparison. Yeah. Again, in in, in, we, in quotes, we say simple, but yeah, I, I do. I, yeah. I see what you're, what you're saying. <laughs> So can we maybe, because uh, again, a lot of really interesting points there. I definitely want to talk about uh, the competitive landscape because I think that is going to be very important. It, it's important in terms of how and why this play gets developed. Uh, but I think just before we move on to that, just to, to set the tone, we're not a community established like current production levels. So we've already talked about kind of some of the infrastructure issues. We've talked about some of the technologies. Uh, where does that lead us today in terms of, uh, of production for oil, oil and gas, if that's possible? Yeah, sure. So last year, average of oil production was at about 140,000 barrels per day. And looking to gas, it was something about 1 billion cubic feet per day. So uh, and the, the question here is, which are the companies that are leading this? Because the scenario is, is a bit, it's, it's changing a bit, you see. If we look at the oil production, the, the top producer is still YPF. In 2021, last year, the, the company has more than 50% share of unconventional production, looking to unconventional. Actually, it's almost 6%. And I'm talking about the operator of these assets, YPF. But at Loma Campana, for example, YPF is together with Chevron and another big asset that's La Marga Chica. YPF is with Petronas. So we have lots of combined companies working. Yeah, they are working together, but with YPF, the largest one they are producing. 
And but the top three last year were, of course, YPF, Vista, oil and gas, and Shell. And Vista is really interesting. It was uh, the one that gained uh, an expressive increase in participation last year. They produce at uh, Barrada de Palo Oeste. It's the, their main assets there. And they had record production at the end of last year. This is a company that started in Vaca Muerta like four or five years ago. So it's really recent. Wow. And when we look at gas, uh, it's a bit less concentrated in YPF, but yeah, not so much. It's more than 30% production being YPF responsibility. But we have Tech Petrol, which is also uh, a big share, has a big share, something about 20%. They produce in Fortin de Piedra. E, and Pampa Energy and Total, with something about 10% each. You see, we are talking about many regional operators, the national company and regional operators. And, and we have also Pan America plus Petrol uh, working in this landscape. So that's not that we don't have majors. Yes, we have. We have lots of majors there, but they are in partnership with YPF or in a reduced scale when we compare with the local companies that are betting their, their chances in Vata Muerte. So not all foreign companies, they are deepening their commitment with Vata Muerte. That's the point. So uh, IOCs, they have commitments there, but they, they have lots of other interesting places to invest. That's the question. Yeah. No, and I think that so maybe if Fernet, I could I could just ask you for some some more context on that. I mean, it, it is interesting to me to hear from you, Renata, that there are these globally known companies because I remember that when the Vaca Muerta was first coming up, so around 2010, you did hear it associated with some of these very large operating companies. And since then, from what I followed, some of them have pulled back on on what I what they probably thought were going to be much larger initial investments. And even though they're in the play, it sounds to me like their motivations for doing so are different from those of, of YPF specifically. And I think that goes back to the question of access, doesn't it, Fernando? Yes, yes. There are that in the context of foreign IRCs are present there. YPF is the dominant, the basin leader in Vaca Morta and regional and domestic players are there. Those on listed by Renata, Vista, Pi is important. Tech Petrol is also important in there. And the partnership, for sure, with the IOCs that had developed technology and knowledge in the U.S. shale plays to, that allowed to develop Vacamorta was essential, for sure. We have to, thinking about resource, Vacamorta accounts, accounts for roughly 50% of the total YPF recoverable resource holdings. So that's the importance of Vaca Water over YPF portfolio. And that's not the same with the other companies. For the smaller the domestics, we, we may see even 100%, well, play companies that are almost uh, only there. Um, right. But uh, for the biggest one in there, we may see Tech Petrol with the same level of uh, Vacamort importance over the portfolios. But for the large IOCs, that, that's not the case. And this lack of materi materiality, it's a significant issue for the large IOCs in there. And, and I think when, too, 
Uh, no, I apologize, Fernando. No, go, 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 ahead. go ahead. No, so I was no. going to say, it's, it's, it sounds to me like the, 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 the issue also is that I think Argentina has quite a specific environment within which to operate, right? So we're talking above ground issues. We, we touched on those at the beginning. And I, I guess if I could just hear from you some, some of the detail around what kind of the, the regulatory and pricing environment is, because I think it sounds to me like because it's so specific, uh, you have to sort of really be comfortable within that environment to make it work. So could you maybe just provide some detail around why it's so it's so different operating in the Vaca Muerta than it might be operating an unconventional development um, in the U.S. Say, yeah, okay. So the above ground in Argentina is a question, is an issue since the early 2010s. The government had tried to provide incentives to upstream operators to boost investment and try to revert the decline in, in production from conventional, um, mainly from conventional oil, uh, oil and gas fields. But despite all these efforts, the government also implemented domestic energy price caps, export restrictions, capital controls, and all of that plays against foreign investors, right? And in addition to that, we saw that the government has also been unable to comply with some incentive schemes that they proposed. But one of the issues in Argentina that it's important to discuss is the managed energy price that try to shield consumers from commodity price movements, which work in favor before gas produced producers um, production has grown as Renata was talking about production um, so recently gas production has grown significantly but for the oil produce, producers this is a bit more complicated they have a kind of local price um, in the past called barril criollo then this price for refineries uh, in Argentina, it's about $55, $60 per barrel when we are doing this, this study by the end of 2021. And if in the export market, the same barrel would be about $79 per barrel. So this spread plays against soil producers. And then again, trying to give more stability and predictability to this fiscal and regulatory regime. For 20 years, the government proposed a new um, a new bill, uh, the, the new hydrocarbon law, that the main incentives were free exports of 20 to 50% of incremental production, freedom to access of 50% of foreign currency, for exports and other additional tax benefits that would be applied for midstream and downstream projects also. So all of, all of this would build a new environment for or a more predictable and stable environment for the developed production. But yeah, um, go yeah. ahead, Hannah. And let me just jump in because what you are saying is really important and it's one of the main problems in Argentina. These uh, managed energy prices, 
you see, nowadays there is no law freezing the crude oil internally. But it's what Fernanda said, the, the, the legislation, it allows somehow some practices internally that can, uh, that the operator can sell its crude oil uh, below the value internationally in the domestic market. And these for, for companies that are not integrated companies, like having the production and the refineries inside the Argentina, they have big problems with that working in Argentina. So yeah. they, they, they can't, uh, some the, the integrated companies, they can buy, they can sell uh, for their refineries, their refineries right. for prices below uh, the international one. And they can export for international prices. So yes. this, this is a fragile economy. That's the point. And, and not only the internal prices or the regulations that are applied by the, the, the government. Now, now we there are a, a high inflation there, so yeah. it also generates lots of strikes, constantly strikes in Argentina, for yeah. now for better salaries. Yeah, yeah. All of yeah. this together creates a, a very critical environment for investment. And although I've, I was talking about this law, it hasn't been discussed yet in current in Congress, and it's unlikely to be discussed in the current Congress, uh, as there are few allies, but a lot of op opponents, and which includes the provincial governors. So there is this, this issue um, on the macro environment, right, Renata? Uh, about this, the hydrocarbon law is was something really expected. It's, it's being expected because it's not approved yet. But there are lots of concerns with the law, and as Fernanda said, it's difficult to to pass through the Congress now. There are lots of opponents, and there are lots of questions actually regarding the law. The law is too big with lots of exceptions inside. It's difficult to 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 plan. Actually, it's the, to have you don't have a, a you don't create a scenario uh, for for huge investments without these some clarity. So this is what is people are saying that is missing in the this in this new law. Yeah. So it remains at the at the same point. Yeah, the, the difficulties internally in Argentina related with stability. And, and so on that point, it seems like the the financial issues would be relatively important here maybe maybe more so than elsewhere do, do you have any kind of do there be any further commentary on uh, on some of those that could uh, that could come up yeah yeah YPF holds about 36 percent of the remaining recoverable resource discovered in the play but uh, and Chevron came in second with 17 percent and tech petrol 11 and by eight uh, so this three companies um, these four companies together, accounts for 72%. And this combination of YPF, Tech Petrol, Pi, and Chevron being the only IOC sets a bit the scene of what we see in the competitive landscape in Vaca Morta. So after this two years of constrained investment uh, due to COVID and low oil price, the big players with other regional players Vista oil and gas, 
they all planned material capital programs to increase production, but not all foreign companies are dipping their commitment in vacuum work. ECNOR, for example, recently relinquished two operated block, and Shell see its operated gross share of oil production fall from about half of what it is in 2021 to about to what it would be in 2030. So the main challenge facing this foreign participants, I think, in, in the vaca morta would be materiality. And the vaca morta accounts for less than 2% of global net remaining resource for Chevron, Total Energy, Shell, Exxon, Ecno, and Wintershop the majors present in there. And this materiality challenge is underscored by the relatively minor role the play has within this company's projected global new source volumes. If you think of a total new source production of these companies, is expected to rise, the vacuum water share of it is expected to rise only modestly from 3% in 2025 to 5% in 2030. It's difficult to see how the play will remain relevant for this IOCs when they are looking to rationalize and consolidate their portfolios, uh, even more when we think about corporate objectives that includes emissions and climate change targets. And then also, if you think of exiting, then there is just low valuations and limited by side, which also difficult exiting the play. But uh, said all of this about the foreign IOCs, it, it can be a very good opportunity for YPF and several domestic and regional upstream companies. And as it moves to be significantly important to the government as an energy security issue, as we we're talking before. But then just to end with that and but bringing some figures so that for the IOCs, the challenge is to guarantee that to finance this huge potential that can reach almost 1.8 million barrels per day of oil equivalent in 2030. If wow. it, it, it can be huge sure. in 2021, it was about 300 and something what we projected as production for, for the reach for the play. So it's wow. a significant growth. And this brings together um, a capex span that should raise from $2 billion in 2021 to $12 billion in 2030. And yeah. And this access, yeah, this access to financial capital for IOCs competes with other international source of uh, other basins that can be more aligned and bring more materiality. And for the domestic and regional players, which includes YPF, then the challenge is in securing access to the capital necessary to invest, the YPF and th this group of players, YPF and 
domestic and regional upstream operators. If you think about 2021-2025, they account for $13.2 billion, which is roughly 64% of the $21 billion that should be the total cumulative development capex during this five-year period. And then we look for the next five-year period, 2026 to 2030, and then remember the 12 billion, the cumulative capex would raise in this five periods to 50 billion. And wow. the commitment of those players, YPF and uh, regional and domestic players, can raise to 33.3 billion. And this is, this is, if you think about how to access this, it's critical, right? They are carrying the burden and they are dealing with increasingly constrained international source of capital. So to achieve the full development of Vacamorta shale plate potential, then capital is going to be for sure critical yeah. resource. <laughs> Yeah, no, and, and I think that that's that's I think the, the the best point to end on I think because that closes the loop with what you had said earlier, which is that depending on the point of view that you're looking at it from, so different companies have different strategic objectives. Opportunities look different, and I think that whereas this might not be material for a large IOC, from the point of view of YPF, and in fact, you know, Argentina and you know the South American region more broadly. Uh, I think that question of access becomes becomes more important. So, um, no, I think that that's that's really interesting. And I it, think it's that, a matter, David, of balancing uh, security, capital access, yep. and regional demands. Absolutely. And company strategies. So. Absolutely. And and I think that the the listeners of this podcast uh, are probably well aware that uh, you know what, what we have covered in this. 35 or 40 minutes is nowhere close to the level of detail that uh, that's being drawn on for the podcast. So if anyone listening out there has uh, interest in learning further about uh, the current state of our research about the Vaca Morta, um, Fernanda and Renata's team uh, contributed to a really, really in-depth report, uh, which I have in front of me right now. It covers the play from you know geologic characteristics all the way down to capital spend. Uh, if you would uh, drop Fernanda uh, a line either on LinkedIn or via the contact page on IHS Market. We'll be happy to get you to get you some information on that. Or depending on where you're listening uh, to this, please just leave a comment and someone will be back in touch with you. Uh, we'll be happy to share some high level insights and perhaps even put you in touch with an expert for um, for further conversation. So before we end, Fernando was kind enough to remind me of this uh, before we we actually started recording, but I've tried to get a little bit of a tradition going where we get to learn about our experts beyond just what they know about their subject matter. So I did steal this from another podcast that I listened to. It's not at all related to energy, but uh, credit to the Habiel podcast out of France. They ask three questions at the end of every show, which I'm going to ask to both of you. So uh, if we could start with Fernanda. So I know you've already answered these, but the world changes quickly. So, you know, no points taken away if the answer is different. But if we could start with uh, what are your essentials to live a, a happy life? Kind of what are the, the handful of things that you really need to, to, to get through your day and be happy? Um, yeah, this question I quite remember. 
and I have to say that it hasn't changed. It's still consistent with that. Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, feminine friends are very important for me and my dog. Uh, I have Very talked good. a lot of him uh, yeah. Yeah, before, and of course coffee. Uh, I don't. It, it's an important thing to make my uh, day. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And and Renata, Renata, what about you? What are your essentials? I think the coffee one from Fernanda is the best <laughs> for me <laughs> also. <laughs> but yeah, for me, I need I need some routine. So I try to create some routine in my life to to start working and to had fun. So for me, uh, I need to start my day. I had to say that <laughs> crossfitting. <laughs> so I do a lot of exercise. I do, I do crossfit. People say that people that uh, does crossfit usually say a lot about it. So <laughs> I, I need to start my routine with that and then uh, a, a coffee and then I'm ready to work and go through my day. So yeah, I think this is this is good for me. So, so the next question, I'm always interested to hear about this because IHS Mark had his offices all around the world. I don't think I mentioned this up front, but Fernanda and Renata are based out of Brazil, which to me sounds pretty fantastic. But my next question to you both is, um, so again, start with you, Fernanda, uh, or yeah, what is your uh, favorite place to be in the world? If not, if not Brazil, where's kind of the, the place where you feel most comfortable and happiest? Um, yeah, I, I do remember my last answer as well, and I have to say that it's still the same. I need to be close to nature, my parents' okay. house, it's very important. But I would like to add that um, I really enjoy traveling around, and I get to know some African countries, and being there, it's not the place that I like most to be, I like most to be here, but get to know some African places, African countries. Um, it's a life experience that um, I think everyone should enjoy once. Fantastic. And Renata, what about you? Yeah, I have to say uh, I really enjoy being in nature also. This is something that calms, calms me down and I'm really happy. So. I have to to sit at Atacama Desert, which was my favorite trip ever. And this is a place, uh, it's an amazing place. And in the same trip, I had the opportunity to go to Bolivia, also in Salada wow. okay. So these are places that for me, I would like to be there once a year, if possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, ho hopefully, you know, as we say this in 2022, hopefully there's more chances for yeah. everyone uh, to go see more of the world out there going forward so that's uh that's great okay last last question uh again back to you fernanda so this is where i ask you for uh, a piece of content that you have really enjoyed recently so a podcast book magazine anything that you really liked and you think maybe someone out in the audience uh, might be interested to check to check out as well it's gonna be funny my my answer in this one uh well thinking about it when coming to here and I recently watched a film that a colleague of mine at IHS recommended because of his granddaughter said that this is the okay. best move okay. ever. <laughs> 12 and 11 year old granddaughter okay. said that this is the best move ever. It's a Disney film called Encanto, yeah, okay. uh, best, best in Colombia. And the mess, the, 
it's a, um, a Disney movie, <laughs> so it's for children, but um, there is some really nice message and really important message even for us adults. So it's a funny time and it's a nice time. Very good. Excellent. And and what about you, Renata? Yeah, so I'm a kind of series addicted person. So now I'm wait. I, I would recommend Picking Blinders. This is one of the most interesting series for me nowadays. And I'm waiting for the last season. So I recommend a lot of people to, to see that one. Fantastic. And I'll just add, so I'll sneak in one of my interests. I am very into kind of menswear and clothing. And although I've not watched Peaky Blinders uh, in the same way that Mad Men showed up a lot in the dialogue, yeah. I the outfits are very well done. So that's uh, that's good. I, I think it may have to be on my list just, uh, just for should. that. Um, especially <laughs> COVID's upended everyone's definition of what to wear. So, hey, who knows? Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe some of that will show up in my wardrobe going forward. But um, no, I, I, think, I think that's great. You know, as always, I really do appreciate both of your time. Uh, I, I hope the audience has enjoyed kind of the knowledge that's been shared on the Vaca Muerta, as well as, of course, just getting to know everyone a little bit more personally. Uh, I do uh, invite anyone who wants more information to get in touch with uh, either Fernanda or Renata. And I will just say that with Zero Week uh, coming up the week after next, uh, if uh, anyone is there, uh, I will be there in person. So please uh, do feel free to come say hi. It would be my pleasure to, to catch up with you. So David, yes. I um, just would like to add that um, the report is um, under the Place and Basins page in Connect, easy to access uh, for people worldwide. Place and Basins Connect page, um, easy to access, and there will be people from our team as well in the zero week. So if anyone would like to reach out, feel free over there. Absolutely, no, it's uh, that that's great. Um, and so, yeah, that's for clients. If, if someone is not a client, you can yeah. still obviously reach out to us, come talk to us at Zero Week, and we'll still be happy to share some of the insights that we have. That's, that's not a problem at all. That's true. Great. All right. Well, thank you both so much. And uh, we look forward to speaking with our audience uh, for the next episode of Upstream in Perspective. Until then, hope you all stay safe, healthy, and uh, that you have a great rest of the week wherever you are in the world. Thanks so much. Thank you, David. Good week thank, as well. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. Also, if you haven't checked us out on social media, please search for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's I-H-S-M-A-R-K-I-T dot com forward slash energy.